I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Bible, and there are also uh, black pew Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you if you don't have a personal copy, Um, and turn with me to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, that can be found on page 685 if you're using one of the black pew Bibles. Um, Lamentations, not a book that we um, uh, often maybe think about too much, but it comes right after the book of Jeremiah, right before the book of Ezekiel, those two really large prophets in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Now, since this is our first week in Lamentations, let me just very briefly say a couple words about the book just to orient ourselves to it as we prepare to read and consider the first chapter, Lamentations chapter one. Now first, Lamentations, as the name suggests, is basically a lament. Um, And to be precise, it's actually five laments. Each of the five chapters that make up Lamentations contains a different poem, and each of those poems reflects upon, laments, one of the most devastating events in Israel's history. That is, the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem temple that happened in 586 BC at the hands of Babylon, which then brought about Israel's 70 years of exile in Babylon, the very event the book of Jeremiah closed with. This was a devastating event in Israel's history. For many, the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and the exile called into question for Israel the character of God. And so Lamentation speaks in the aftermath of that event to help Israel understand what happened and why it happened. Now, traditionally, uh, the book of Lamentations is credited to, or Jeremiah is credited as the author of Lamentations. That's never explicit in the text. That's a claim that was made a little bit later, but it's reasonable. There's no reason to dispute that claim, I don't think. And so we'll refer to the author of Lamentations throughout our study as Jeremiah. Now, as we turn our attentions to Lamentations chapter one, we are dealing with a little bit longer text. So rather than reading the whole thing right now at once, we're gonna start out with the first half of Lamentations one, Lamentations one verses one through 11, and then a little bit later in our sermon, we'll consider the second half of Lamentations one uh, verses 12 through 22. So with that said, hear now the word of the Lord. This is Lamentations one verses one through 11. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. 
Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. This is the word of the Lord. On May 22nd, 2011, um, one of the deadliest tornadoes in U.S. history, some of you may remember, struck the town of Joplin, Missouri. Uh, the tornado was measured as an EF5, that's the highest measurement on the scale of tornado wind speeds. It measured wind speeds in excess of 200 miles per hour. It was just under a mile wide as well. And when it came crashing through the town of Joplin, Missouri, it left horrible devastation in its wake. Um, 161 people lost their lives. Well over 1,000 people were injured. And at $2.8 billion in damage, and that includes 4,300 homes that were destroyed, over 500 businesses that were lost, it would go down as the most expensive tornado still to this day in U.S. history. Now, in the aftermath of such a total destructive event, when the storm clouds eventually dissipated and survivors were able to emerge from their shelters, many of the people of Joplin were faced with the gut-wrenching question, as you could imagine, how in the world do we pick up the pieces? How do we move forward after suffering such loss? Now, in the case of this tornado, one of the perhaps small measures of comfort was that help quickly poured into town. Uh, There were were hundreds of emergency vehicles, over 1,000 emergency personnel that flocked to town within 24 hours, and in the weeks and months and even years that followed, over 180,000 volunteers had some hand in the recovery efforts. Money was also donated, funds were established to help individuals and families and businesses pick up the pieces such that in the years that have followed, Joplin has been able in some way to recover. Now when we turn our attention to the book of Lamentations and particularly to Lamentations chapter one, understand that God's people have just themselves faced utter devastation. Remember, I said a moment ago that that Lamentations is written in the wake of Jerusalem just being destroyed, along with the temple too, the place where God dwelt with his people in the Old Testament. And Israel had just begun their 70 years of exile away from the land of promise, away from the land that God had promised to give to his people. And they're likewise faced with that gut-wrenching question, how in the world do we pick up the pieces? How do we process through this event that just happened? What it says about God, what it says about us, and what in the world comes next? And yet these questions, though on the surface, may be questions that anyone who has faced devastation like the people of Joplin might ask. They also carry a different kind of weight for Jeremiah and for the people of Israel. Because for one thing, the people of Israel have only themselves to blame for the devastation they just experienced. 
Now, Jeremiah is going to make that clear throughout chapter 1, that the devastation that Israel faced in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that specific destruction came about explicitly because of their sin. It wasn't some disaster that came about as a result of living in a fallen world, it's the case with Joplin and so many other natural disasters that, that, that are faced in this world. This was a disaster, to be sure, but it was one that came about as a result of how they had flouted God's law. And then for another thing, in the wake of this disaster, the disaster of Jerusalem's destruction, there was no help. There were no relief drives to get Israel back on their feet again. In fact, five times in chapter one, we hear the lament that there was no one to comfort Jerusalem. There was only shame and humiliation. And in that way, although Lamentations as a whole, and particularly Lamentations chapters one, provides us with language for ourselves to use when we face any manner of devastation, it's particularly interested with the question of how do we, how do I pick up the pieces when we are drowning? in the shame of our own sin. So our big idea as we study Lamentations 1 is this. Seek comfort through confession. Seek comfort through confession. And as we work through this passage, uh, we're gonna do it in three parts. <clears throat> in the first point, we're gonna see um, how Jeremiah encourages the people of Israel, and by extension us, to see clearly. Here he's specifically asking the question, we're specifically asking the question, what happened? Second, he encourages us to discern accurately why did this happen? And then third, to respond appropriately. What's next? What comes next for Jerusalem? How do you respond after a disaster like that? So that's our outline. See clearly, discern accurately, and respond appropriately. If you have one of the um, worksheets, you can see that clearly outlined there. So let's begin, see clearly. Now, as a father of, uh, of two young children, an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, um, there is never a time when I don't know if my kids have injured themselves. Uh, because when they stub a toe or they scrape a knee, um, weeping and wailing, I won't go as far as to say gnashing of teeth, fills the whole house. Uh, my kids, I'm sure this is true of um, nearly every kid, and parents, you can probably relate with this. Our kids very often don't like to be silent sufferers. They want to be seen and heard. And as we look through verses 1 through 11, we notice that this is true of Israel too. Notice in verse 9, Israel cries out, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. And then again in verse 11, look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. The city of Jerusalem here personified through Jeremiah cries out throughout chapter one for God to see her affliction, to comfort her and her children in their suffering. But at the same time that she and the people who once resided within her walls cry out to the Lord to see them, to see them in their suffering, well, it's also important that they first and foremost see themselves and that they see God clearly too. And throughout the first half of our passage, scattered throughout these verses we just read, verses 1 through 11, we find that Jeremiah, in a number of ways, reviews what just happened to the nation, and particularly to the city of Jerusalem when Babylon finally sacked the city. And in reviewing what happened in that fateful event, Jeremiah also subtly reminds God's people where they were before they so tragically fell so that they would begin to see both themselves and God with the clarity that that demands. 
So look first at verse one where Jeremiah, he simultaneously highlights the former glory of the city, where the city was and now where the city tragically finds herself now. First, he reminds us that at one time, Jerusalem was full of people. There was worship in the temple at one time. People made their livelihoods in the marketplace at one time. People at one time had networks of family and friends throughout the city. The city was thriving. But what about now? Well, now the city sits lonely. At one time we read, the city of Jerusalem, it was great among the nations. Think about the days of Solomon when the temple was built and the queen of Sheba pilgrimed to Jerusalem to bask in the wisdom of Solomon and in the grandeur of his kingdom. But, but what about now? Well, now the city's like a bereaved and broken widow, vulnerable and alone. And then while at one time Jerusalem was like a princess, royal and dignified, well now she's a slave, subject to the demands of another nation, forced to serve in another house, and as verse two reminds us, abandoned by those lovers and friends. That would be those other nations who they thought were their allies, but who in the course of Babylon's invasion abandoned her at a whim. But while her geopolitical posture, her political posture in the region had been obviously reduced to ashes, notice that Jeremiah, by and large in this passage, focuses on her worship. And as we continue, we find that her worship had been silenced too. In verse four, Jeremiah tells us that the roads to Zion mourn for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Now Zion, that's another name for Jerusalem, and it's often used to highlight kind of the religious significance of the city, which fits with what Jeremiah tells us here about the former days of Jerusalem or Zion. You see, when Zion was inhabited by people. When the temple stood in the heart of the city, worshipers from all over Israel would flock there three times a year along the roads. They'd come to Jerusalem, they'd ascend Mount Zion, they'd come to the temple, they would worship at the appointed feast and festivals. But now, well now, the roads are empty because the temple no longer stands. Zion's been reduced to ashes. The majority of the population has gone into exile, and the virgins who used to sing and dance during these appointed feasts, well, they too have fallen silent. But as Jeremiah continues, he reminds us that the issue, if it couldn't get any worse, is even worse than that. It's worse than simply the silence of worshipers, because in verse six, he draws our attention to the object of worship, and he writes, from the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Now, this word majesty is often used in the scriptures to describe God. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 104.1 tells us that God is clothed in majesty. And in the former days, when God was present with his people in Jerusalem, when his glory filled the temple, majesty was bestowed upon the city. But to say that her majesty departed tells us that the Lord had, in some sense, withdrawn his glory from Zion. And the book of Ezekiel actually tells us about that. When the prophet sees in a vision just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, the glory of the Lord departing the temple. And so with the worship of Israel silence, the Lord's majesty absent from the temple, the enemy 
is able to have their way with the precious things of the temple. In verse 10, we're reminded of how the temple was plundered, both by Babylon and by other nations who were in league with Babylon when the city was invaded. In short, worship didn't just cease as we read about in verse 4 and in verse 6. The holy place of worship and the holy things, the sacred things that were set apart for that holy worship, they've been defiled. And so scattered throughout here, verses 1 through 11, Jeremiah surveys for us how far Jerusalem had fallen. But what's the point of this? What's the point of rehearsing all of these details? Wouldn't, wouldn't Israel have known all of these details as they're trying to pick up the pieces in Babylon? Well, these details probably served a, a number of different purposes, one of which is to remind future generations just what happened. But one of the things that they also do in the moment is they help provide clarity to the sufferer. They help provide clarity to the sufferer. Now, many of you have probably seen at one time or another um, some version of what we'll call a selective attention test, a selective attention test, where you, the subject, is instructed to focus all of your attention on something very particular, but in the meantime, something that would otherwise be unmistakable walks through the scene and is often missed by you, the subject, because you've been so narrowly focused on that one particular thing. The, the popular video that comes to mind from probably a couple of decades ago at this point is the one where a bunch of people are passing a basketball around, you might know it, and you're called to count intentionally how many times the basketball is passed around. Just focus on that. But then in the course of that, somebody in a gorilla suit walks by, and, uh, and oftentimes you miss it because you've been so narrow focused on counting, counting those passes. Well, this is often what suffering does to us. Whether our suffering is the direct consequence of our sin, like it was for Israel, or not. In our suffering, we are so often susceptible to selective attention or to tunnel vision, where we fail to see and evaluate God and His purposes rightly, and even who we are in Christ rightly. In our suffering, we may imagine that something is outside of God's providential control, or we may question whether or not God in any particular moment is really good as the scriptures claim that he is. And yet throughout the first part of our passage in Jeremiah, as he reminds the people of God of the tragedy that they just experienced, he also reminds them that in their suffering, in their exile, God had one, never ceased to be in control, and two, had always been good to his people. So how does Jeremiah remind the people of Israel about this? Well, the first way is actually kind of subtle, and we can't really see this in the English translations, but if we were to look at the Hebrew of this passage, we would see that all of Lamentations chapter one is actually an alphabetic acrostic. You see, there are 22 verses in Lamentations chapter one. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and, uh, as e and each verse that we go to begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. As one commentator puts it, quote, Lamentations describes the suffering of God's people from A to Z, or from Aleph to Tav, the first and last letters in the Hebrew alphabet. But more than that, it also reminds us that even as Lamentations 1, as we just read, is filled with themes of disorder and suffering and destruction, its message is one that's fundamentally ordered by the one who orders all human history. 
In short, Jeremiah portrays the suffering of God's people very much within the providential, authoritative control of God, and even tells us later in the passage that it was the Lord who ordained, who brought about what happened in this destruction of Jerusalem. But more than that, these verses also remind the sufferer how good God had been to them. Yes, the city when Jeremiah writes Lamentations sits in ashes. Yes, the worship in Jerusalem that once filled the streets, filled the temple, had not now fallen silent. But it's not as if God ceased to be good to his people. It was the Lord, after all, who made a covenant with Israel in the first place. It was the Lord who blessed David and Solomon when Israel was at its high point. It was the Lord who dwelt among his people in the tabernacle and later in the temple and made a way for his people to draw near to him in worship. And even when the people of Israel go into exile because of their sins, which we'll see in a moment, the Lord had already promised through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 that he would bring them out again after 70 years. Jeremiah, the people of Israel, they've been devastated by exile, but the first step in picking up the pieces is to see God rightly. So what about you? Do you trust in God's goodness even when suffering loss? Do you rest in God's providential control of all things, even when anxiety about the future stirs in your soul? If you're suffering right now, do you see your suffering rightly through a biblical and theological lens, or instead, if you're honest with yourself, is tunnel vision or selective attention perhaps fostering some bitterness or even narcissism in your soul? Jeremiah encourages God's people, including you and I, to remember their history, remember our history, to know that our history is being steered and always has been by a good God who's providentially in control of it. But just as Israel needed to know their history, they needed to see God clearly, the God behind their history, so too they also need to appreciate why. In this particular case, Jerusalem's destruction and their ensuing exile came to pass in the first place. And so this leads to our second point, second, where Israel is called, we are called as well to pick up the pieces by discerning accurately, discerning accurately. Now we've already mentioned at this point, several times already, that Jerusalem, Israel's misfortunes at this point in history didn't come about simply as a result of living in a fallen world. Now, other texts in the Bible have much to say about that issue, um, the book of Job, for example, but Israel's misfortunes in this case came about as a direct consequence of their sin, and that's exactly what Jeremiah tells us. First, notice in verse 5, uh, Jeremiah laments, speaking of Jerusalem, he tells us, her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Now, earlier in the Bible, uh, this would be back in the book of Deuteronomy, when Israel hadn't yet entered the land of promise, but they were preparing to enter the land of promise. The Lord told his people that when they settled in the land of promise eventually, that they had to walk according to God's commandments. They had to live in a particular way that pleases him. And according to Deuteronomy 28, if they did that, well, they would get blessing. But if they didn't do that, they would get cursed. 
And the chief curse, according to Deuteronomy 28, should uh, they disobey the Lord and persist in their disobedience, would be exile from the land. Well, this is what Jeremiah alludes to in verse five when he mentions that in the aftermath of Jerusalem's destruction, her foes have become the head. Because back in Deuteronomy 28, verse 44, the Lord told his people that should they fail to listen to the Lord, the Lord would subject his people to foreigners who would lead them. They would be the head and Israel would be reduced to being the tail. And so Israel is now reaping the very real consequences of their sin and disobedience, consequences that the Lord warned about a thousand years beforehand. And Jeremiah then tells us explicitly again that Jerusalem, Israel, had gone into exile, quote, for the multitude of her transgressions. Likewise, we'll read about this in a moment. In verses 12 through 22, we hear this same connection between Jerusalem's destruction and her sin. But for now, Jeremiah wants the people of God to see their sin and to understand that sin carries consequences. You know, a number of years ago, I had a, a somewhat memorable coffee meeting one afternoon with a dear pastor friend of mine. A lot of meetings that I've had in my life don't stand out, but this one does in particular. Uh, this pastor friend was mentoring me, and earlier in the day, on this particular day, I remember having a, um, a pretty frustrating interaction with someone else, and I kind of brought that into my meeting with my pastor and mentor friend, uh, basically vented about all the reasons I was upset with this person that I had met with earlier in the day. But rather than affirming me in my frustrations, joining me in my outrage about what transpired with that other individual earlier in the day, my mentor did something I didn't expect. He stopped me in my tracks and he gently but firmly reflected my sin back to me. Now in the moment, that wasn't what I expected. I remember sitting there speechless for a few moments afterwards, not quite sure what to say or what to do. But brothers and sisters, so often that's exactly what we need. This is what Jeremiah does for the people of Israel in Lamentations as well. Now again, we have to remember that suffering and misery it's not always due to our sin. It's, it's always the result of living in a sinful world, but there are countless situations where we just can't draw the line from something we did to our present misfortune. But with that said, there are times where we, like Israel, bear responsibility. There are times in life when our sin reaps very real and tangible consequences. And when that happens, we need friends who are willing to point that out to us, never maliciously or callously, but to point it out nevertheless. And, and more than that, we need at all times the illuminating ministry of God's word and spirit to surface our sin and to call us to account. Now, of course, it's never pleasant when we recognize our sin and are called to come to terms with it. Often we end up deflecting uh, the discomfort that brings by shifting the blame elsewhere but recognize that there can be no comfort in lying to ourselves about our own righteousness. The only comfort we have in view of our sin is to rest in the comfort that's provided outside of us, the comfort that's provided in the gospel. Now, earlier I mentioned that five times in Lamentations 1, we hear the refrain that Israel had no one to comfort them, no relief drive to help them land back on their feet, only shame as they headed into exile for their sin. And yet even before their exile started, 
through the ministry of another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, the Lord announced that their exile would eventually end, and when it ended, the Lord would bring comfort again to his people. But the ultimate realization of that comfort wouldn't come after a mere 70 years in exile. It would come a few centuries later in Jesus Christ our Lord. It would come when the one who knew no sin, the one who was perfectly obedient to the law of God in every way, the only one who was ever completely pure in heart, the only one who deserved the blessings of the covenant, but who nevertheless took upon himself our shame, our sin, and bore the curses of the covenant so that we as his people might reap the blessings. Friends, this is why we can be honest about our sin, why we need not minimize or deflect our sin when the scriptures surface it or when our friends point it out to us, because our sin, as serious as it is, is not the final word. Just as Israel's sin wasn't the end of their story, our sin is not the end of ours. So see your sin, be honest about your sin, but also then take it one step further by responding appropriately when you see it by bringing your sin before the God of all comfort. And this leads to our final point where we are called to respond appropriately. And basically Jeremiah here is answering the question, what do I do now? What's next? I've seen God rightly, I've seen my situation, I've seen my sin, what do I do now to pick up the pieces? And so here, we're going to turn to verses 20, 12 through 22, the second half of chapter 1. Um, the first thing we're going to notice, I'm going to read this in a second, is that in verses 12 through 22, the speaker shifts. In the first half of chapter 1, Jeremiah, he provided for us this objective, high-level overview of Israel's situation when Babylon raised the city in 586 B.C. But now in verses 12 through 22, we're going to hear Jerusalem speak herself. She's personified by Jeremiah as this bereaved woman, and we're going to hear what she has to say. So if you're looking at your text, follow along with me as we read and hear what Lady Jerusalem says in verses 12 through 22. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men, the Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, <clears throat> my, ear, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. 
In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. Now Jerusalem's perspective on things here in verses 12 through 22 is by no means out of accord with what we just heard in the first half of chapter one. In the first half of chapter one, we heard Jerusalem, Jeremiah recount what happened to Jerusalem when it was destroyed, and Lady Jerusalem likewise reflects on what happened and even gives a lot of those same details, a theological interpretation, and, and her grief, as we hear, kind of colors everything that she says. Similarly, we heard Jeremiah in the first half of chapter one lay the blame for Jerusalem's destruction solely at her feet. And likewise, even in the depths of her sorrow, Jerusalem is able to see clearly and acknowledge the uncomfortable reality that she brought calamity upon herself for her sin. She, She recognizes in verse 14, my transgressions were bound into a yoke. A yoke is a large wooden frame placed upon an ox by a farmer to keep it kind of in check. And in the case of Jerusalem, her yoke, her burden, was one that was fashioned not out of wood, but out of her sin. And yet even as Jerusalem sees things accurately, she recognizes even in her grief that she only has herself to blame that still doesn't stop her from turning to the Lord. One commentator notes how this parallels so much of what we find in the Psalms, where to quote this one commentator, quote, people pray as moral or religious failures, but they pray anyway. And friends, this is the response that we're invited into, even as we're undone, perhaps, with the shame of our own sin. Now, I'm sure many of us can think back to moments in our life that make us cringe in retrospect and embarrassment. Now, don't worry, I won't make you relive those moments too long, Um, but we all know the feeling when we say something or we do something incredibly embarrassing, and we'd rather just live the rest of our lives in a cave rather than see the people we just embarrassed ourselves before. Well, understand that Jerusalem has every reason to be embarrassed before God for her folly. And yet, what does she say in verse 18? She says, The Lord is in the right, for I've rebelled against his word. And then in verse 20, she prays. She says, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. Jerusalem's fear, which represents the fear of God's people, isn't that God would see her, it's that the Lord wouldn't see her, that the Lord would want nothing to do with this wayward and sinful people, and so she prays without defending herself in her embarrassment and shame for the Lord to hear, see her, and embrace her once again. And church, this is the kind of response that we're encouraged, invited to echo as well. When we recognize our sin and with sobriety and honesty, we begin to see just how we've sinned against God or against our brothers and sisters and the weight of realizing our culpability begins to set in, rather than distracting ourselves with other things or avoiding the issue and just hoping that it'll go away, we're called to bring that sin to God in prayer, to confess it like Jerusalem does, because it's only then that we'll find relief 
for our souls. You know, a moment ago I read from verse 20 where Jerusalem prays about my stomach churning, my heart wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. And this is quite similar to what King David himself prays in verse 30, in Psalm 32 rather, when he reflects upon his own sin. In Psalm 32, David acknowledges, quote, that when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. And yet, how do things change for King David when he sees that sin, but then more than that, confesses that sin? Well, in the very next verse, in Psalm 32, David tells us, he writes, I acknowledge my sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, it's true that we can't control, unfortunately, whether or not somebody else will forgive us when we sin against them. And that can really grieve us when others, for whatever reason, refuse to offer us forgiveness. But the Bible reminds us that every single one of our sins, every single one of our transgressions is first and foremost against the Lord. And what the scriptures promise us is for those who are in Christ, our confession is never the final word. Our confession does not fall on deaf ears, as it were, because there's always, for those who are in Christ, an assurance of pardon that follows. In the final verse of Jeremiah's lament, We hear her pray. She prays to the Lord after making confession, after recognizing her sin. She prays that all the evildoers would be dealt with for their sin. And here she has in mind particularly Babylon and Edom and Moab for how these nations acted towards Jerusalem when she was at her lowest point. They showed Jerusalem no mercy and took advantage of her in every way. The Lord may have used those, did indeed use those nations as instruments to discipline his people, and in the future, he promises that he will judge those nations for their sins, and that's what Jerusalem prays for as the verse closes out. And yet though we, together with Jerusalem, hope and pray that one day God would vindicate his people, that he would judge all of his enemies as he ushers in a glorious new heavens and new earth, the the assurance for both Jerusalem and for us is that God first judged his son, that God gave up his son to the shame and mockery of the cross, and because that happened, we have assurance, assurance that our prayers of confession are heard, assurance that all of our sins are forgiven, and assured that our laments, our groans of laments, will one day give way to everlasting praise and joy. And so, brothers and sisters, recognize God's faithfulness towards you in Christ. Be honest with yourself about your sin. You've been free to do that. And not just that you're a sinner in some kind of general way, but the specific sin that you need to confess before God and the specific sin patterns that you often find yourself in. Because only then will we be able to rest in the comfort that the Lord provides through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in just a moment, we're going to turn our attention, as we always do every Sunday, to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and be renewed in the grace of this gospel through ordinary bread and ordinary wine. But before we do that, let me leave us with this closing thought. As a church, comfort each other with the comfort you have received through the gospel. 
Now we said a couple times already how God's people in the aftermath of the city's destruction, they, they felt like they had no comfort, no one to comfort them, no one to see their affliction. They asked for passerbys to look at them and passerbys wouldn't even look at them. They wanted God to see their affliction and they wanted comfort. Now while the comfort they saw can only be found in the good news of the gospel, the same is true for you and I today obviously, we're nevertheless called in the church to regularly point each other to that gospel comfort when we see our brothers and sisters sitting in despair, aware of their sins and in need of much grace. The Apostle Paul calls us in Romans 12, 12 to weep with those who weep. And then in 2 Corinthians 1, 4, we're called to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Brothers and sisters, in the same way our passage calls us to be aware of our personal sin, to confess our personal sin when we see it, to regularly bring it before God, don't forget to help the brother, your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, to come alongside those in our body who see their sin, who grieve their sin, who are maybe ashamed of their sin, and help them find comfort in the gospel of our salvation. It's our only hope in Jesus Christ in life and in death. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for a passage like Lamentations, a passage that maybe drives us at first blush to the depths of despair when we think about our own sin and the ways that we have, like Jerusalem, sinned against you and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet at the same time, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would draw our, our t- attention to our sin, help us to see our sin and evaluate it and appraise it for what it is and confess our sin before you. Would we also remember that this isn't the end of your story, that this isn't the end of the story of the Scriptures because uh, you, through the gospel of our salvation, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, um, gave himself up so that we could be your people secured in an everlasting relationship with you, not because of our own righteousness, but solely because the only one who is righteous, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.